Would you like a hat, sir? My name is Matthew Kroll. And sometimes you gotta be Sally Field. My name is Shahir Dow. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film American Factory. Which is the first film to be produced by former President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. Uh, And we thought, since it was such a politically motivated film, or at least perhaps potentially politically motivated film, uh, we should have a guest who might know a thing or two about politics. We've decided to have with us, and very pleased to have with us, Zishan Alim from, uh, well, you're a freelance journalist, right? Right, that's right. Uh, um, But you write for a number of publications, including uh, The Atlantic, Esquire, Guardian, Vice, you basically, this this is my... Uh, every morning, this is my browser tab, by the way. Um, <laughs> Fox, HuffPost, Pacific Standard, Mike, The American Prospect, and now new, now this news. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, we specifically, we're having you on because you you actually wrote a piece for Vice about this film, uh, which I, I I'll, I'll say the title right now because I think it'll frame some of our discussion. But the title was Obama's new documentary is a great is great. But it also reveals why he's out of touch, which I thought was just a, a fantastic title <laughs> for one, and a fantastic way to think about this film uh, that we're going to be discussing today. Indeed. Um, <laughs> so I, sorry, I always get I, with the formalities of introducing people. I'm always always want to be like, you know, you did eventually get to the thanking him for being here before reading his accolades. But thank you for being here again. <laughs> um, yeah, this movie uh, we definitely needed. <laughs> A bit of uh, of a of a professional touch, I feel, to because we can talk about sort of how we feel about the things. But you you've done, I mean, you've done work in this space. You've done you a know, little bit, yeah. So th- I think that's going to be amazing. Um, real quick, wh- before we even dive in to uh, American Factory. Uh, so we like to on this show get a, a a feel of our guests' cinematic um, histories or or preferences or uh, flavors, if you will. What what uh what normally uh, what type of movies are you into? Um, I like a little bit of everything, but I do have um, some somewhat of an embarrassing obsession with watching horror films. Nice, um, and I derive fulfillment, e- you know, equal fulfillment from watching terrible ones, ironically, <laughs> or really well-made ones in a serious way. No, that's that's the two ways to enjoy horror films. I'm yeah. kind of more interested in the terrible ones, ironically. What what are the? Could you give us a couple of things that you've dug over the last um, few years? First thing that comes to mind was pr- probably uh, Cabin Fever. Oh. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That, my, yep. My, that's not that's not particularly terrible though. No, I, but it's, no. It's sort of that's true. I mean, it's sort of I guess deliberately. Wait, are you talking camp. about the remake? There was a remake of Cabin Fever a few years ago, and then there's the original. When was the original? The original, I think, was like 2005 or something like that. Maybe? Yeah, and that was that had the uh, oh god, the friend from Boy Meets World was in it. Yes, I think that's the one. Okay, I yeah, the yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. The one yeah. with the bunny rabbit at the end, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It uh, was a lot. <laughs> I liked Cabin Fever. Uh, I really liked it. I, I mean, I don't know. I couldn't tell how much of it was deliberate. My friends and I, I remember watching it with my high school friends. We had a kind of ongoing debate about how much of it was sort of self-conscious and sort of like deliberately, you know, eccentric and weird. But it was extremely entertaining. There's definitely, when you're dealing with films like that that sort of ride the line, it, it they lean into tropes. I think the ones that do it correctly lean into the tropes the right amount that then sort of let you have fun with the premise that is... You know, pretty much ridiculous, but they treat it serious enough. It's a nice sort of like knife's edge walk. Yeah, I, I agree. 
I went to a screening of that before it was a big deal, um, and I, Eli Roth was at the screening. Uh, okay. And so I got to meet him very, very briefly. Um, he's, for one thing, this is incredible about Eli Roth, he's an incredible public speaker. Like, he is one of the most charming, charismatic people I've ever seen stand huh. on a stage. Like, he could win over any audience. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty self- uh, short of that. But he described Cabin Fever, because at the same time, Donnie Darko came out. And That's he right. Said, he said uh, Donnie Darko and Cabin Fever were the same, fe- uh, were the same film, but with different percentages of rabbit. And he was basically, <laughs> he said Donnie Darko was 90% rabbit and 10% evil dead. And Cabin Fever was 90% evil dead, 10% rabbit. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a good uh, good way to think about it. Accurate, Eli Roth. <laughs> uh, another thing, I don't know if you've seen this movie. I do. This is just one of my favorite schlocky but still well-produced horror films of the last year. Uh, the film Escape Room. I actually did see that. Did you? Oh, wow. How did you feel about it? Well, I saw an airplane. When I'm on an airplane, th- weird things happen to me mentally there, well, and emotionally. A, so yeah, yeah, there's a different uh, there's a different level of oxygen going to your brain, and therefore yeah. you experience emotions of film differently. Whatever. Yeah, that was really intense. I thought. I mean, I don't. I think I suspend some of my critical faculties when I'm watching on a plane. I just want to be entertained. It was yeah. extremely entertaining. Yeah, the pacing was good. What did you think of it? I mean, I, I've I've sung its praises for yeah. for a while. I actually just went. to... <laughs> This isn't too long of a story, but I was in Maine for a bit, and my friends are like, there's this video store closing, and they're, they're selling all their Blu-rays. And I'm like, ding, 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 ding. So we went out there, and I got a copy for five bucks, and I am very happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Matt's been trying to get me to watch and discuss that film for the longest really? period of time. I, and you might, have, you might have given the validation he needs for us to watch It is true. Episode. It is true. Maybe one, when, we're, when we're hurting for an, uh, a movie one week, we'll do it. <laughs> but I, I actually I enjoyed it. For, I was shocked how much I like thought about yeah. it. I was like, oh, this is neat. Maybe it's because I like escape rooms. Maybe it's because I like the style of film we're describing but yeah remind me a little bit of the game yeah yeah oh, now see i love the game so it's the okay it's it's it, there is definite uh similarities but the game i mean that was that was it was well this escape room was clever there were clever moments in escape room but wrapped in a real schlocky package where yeah. i feel like the game was like the game is a class act i've always said the game is basically the best alfred hitchcock movie that alfred hitchcock never, never made I've actually I'm only... learning so much right now. <laughs> this is great. I, I've only seen... We should be talking to you as opposed to talking to each other. This is the last thing I want to say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've only seen the game once. Oh, my God. But, I, but here's the thing. I am so happy that I've done that because I still have that one experience of not knowing what the hell is going on, and it was so effective for me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I've never had a movie where I'm like, I will never watch this movie again because I loved the experience so much, mm-hmm. and that's just and I'm fine with it. There's that's a, a praise to the film in a weird way, not a not a not a detriment. So anyway, well, one one other question for you. Um, you're obviously a political journalist. Uh, I'm curious if there's any been any films that have kind of spoken to you as a professional, like films that you know, like we've we've talked a lot on this podcast about Spotlight, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, not a political uh, uh, a film about political journalism, but a film about journalism nonetheless. I'm curious if uh, you know. Like if because of the field you're in, you're kind of into all the president's men or you've you've thought about, you know, like there, there are particular films you've seen that that speak to what you do professionally. You know, I actually tend to avoid movies about <laughs> journalism mainly. I mean, when you work in journalism, you don't want to like think that much about it when right. you're not doing yeah, it. It's all, you're sense. always, always online. Yeah. But I do think a movie that resonated a lot with me when I was younger was Fight Club, which is kind of oh, embarrassing yeah. <laughs> to say. But as a teenager, I like absolutely loved it. And it didn't necessarily have any directly, you know, professional consequences, but specifically 
I watched it right at a time when I was going, becoming very disenchanted with the world politically and economically and seeing something that was such a sort of rabid critique of like a consumerist economy and the sort of emptiness of just sort of trying to fulfill yourself by buying and selling things and, 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 and having your identity wrapped up mm. in, in, in consumerism, which just really, really struck me deeply and kind of validated some of the feelings I was having. And I don't, you know, I didn't necessarily start like a project mayhem <laughs> myself, but like it definitely cemented the, the, the conviction that I should be doing something provocative. And, and, uh, I didn't really decide that I was going to be a, a journalist, right? Like right until the end of undergrad, but I, I was always into politics. So, right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that year, 1999, was also the year, the same year that American Beauty came out. You know, which mm -hmm. won, swept the Oscars, and there was that. I think both those films and maybe The Insider, which came out at the same time, had that sentiment. Like there was this sort of strange American sentiment around that period of like anti-consumerism, or there was this kind of wokeness that we all got about like you know uh, buying IKEA furniture wasn't the way to like make our lives fulfilled. Yeah, his name was Robert Paulson. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the. The interesting thing about Fight Club that I always and I, it's it's changed. I like you when I was that age and it came out. I was like, oh hell yeah, like fuck society, like woo. But they're like it, in like a weird sort of like, it's that baseline of what the film is. And then as I've watched it, you know, growing up, I sort of see the more the more nuances of it. But I also see that it it's actually it seems anyway like its critique is so good that it will also critique those that like buy, buy into, into it. its own ideology too hard because it's kind of about not buying into really any ideology to like extremes are bad. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've always found and then like it's interesting because like the the graphic novel obviously existed and then there's a second sequel, there's a sequel yeah. graphic novel which i did not enjoy oh, um I, I think it i think it lost a little bit of its shine or even bought into I, when when a, when a series starts referencing itself too much especially one that is has an anti sort of like base your life around something message anyway i'm trailing but uh i i love fight club so much because it does it, it has changed its meaning has changed for me as i have uh, uh, I don't want to say grown up, grown older. <laughs> so yeah, no. I, I have almost that similar, not fear you have with the the game, but I'm also, I wonder if I'm what I'm going to feel like if I watch it again because it was it's so tied up in my sort of, you know, mm. you know, coming into myself yeah. from when I was younger that I don't know what it would be like to revisit it and if I would sort of view it as like immature or amateur or like you said or come across as, as you probably did a lot of, of extra nuances and in some ways I'm almost satisfied just to let it sit there as like a p thing that I kind of feel nostalgic over rather yeah. than but I should revisit at some point is I, there is there a term for that Shahir is there a cinematic or or, or an audience sort of term in, in cinema and if there's not we gotta make it <laughs> to, before this is over uh, for <laughs> For, for the the desire and the love of a film and the experience you saw so much that you don't want to ruin it by a second viewing. I mean, I don't think there's a term for it, but idolation is probably the closest thing you're thinking of, which is yeah. that like you're you know you want to put it on a pedestal and the thought of having it taken away from that. I, I will say the two films that you've referenced are both David Fincher films, The Game and Fight True. Club, and and it, and I do revisit those both of them often. And I think Fight Club has the most danger of of feeling somewhat toxic now, especially in the culture that we live in now. But it like like Matt said, it actually is a fairly nuanced critique, despite being sort of quite exhilarating and quite um, quite fantastically made and quite. Um, um, quite bombastic, I guess is yeah. the word for it, but it actually does hold up, in my opinion. 
Um, if our listeners have a different opinion about that, you can email <laughs> us in at uh, onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. I'm, I'm very curious about that because I wonder if our listeners would want us to do an escape room episode or revisit the game or revisit Fight Club. I'm telling you right now, listeners, I'm terribly sorry. I will not rewatch the game. I'm holding. <laughs> really? Yeah, I won't do it. I won't, I love it. I love that experience so much. Can I have I this one that. thing? I respect Can I have that. one? I, I will, I, no, I'll just say this like flat out. The game gets bitter every time I watch it, and that, without a doubt. That may be, but I don't have any other experience in the movies like the game currently, and if I watch it again, I will not have that experience anymore. <laughs> oh, well, any, at any rate, we should move on to the film that we're actually here to discuss. So, Matt, can you tell us what American Factory is all about? Why, yes, I can. Directed by Julio Reichardt and Stephen Bogner, IMDb tells us, in a post-industrial Ohio, a Chinese billionaire opens a new factory Factory in the husk of an abandoned General Motors plant, hiring 2,000 blue-collar Americans. Early days of hope and optimism give way to setbacks as high-tech China clashes with working-class America. Now, uh, the, again, this was an interesting one because it was a Netflix original um, that we decided to, to, to discuss. And it, I think the interesting reason that I wanted to discuss it, or at least I felt that it would, might be of interest, is that uh, the film kind of falls uh, on the sort of on the nexus of three really interesting events that are happening in the world as we speak today. Uh, the first is uh, uh, <laughs> maybe tangentially kind of... Um, associated with what happens in this film, but there is this ongoing trade war that has been escalating between the Trump administration uh, and China, so to speak. And I think you've written kind of, uh, you've written about this specifically, but you've also written, uh, I, I found this fascinating article that you've written about Peter Navarro mm -hmm. uh, and his feelings about China, who is, uh, Peter Navarro is the current um, uh, trade uh, sorry, uh, manuf trade and manufacturing uh, secretary. Is that correct? Is that he, the correct terminology? Uh, well, I think he's had a... Uh, his office has moved around a little bit over the course of his time in the Trump administration, much like many people. So off the top of my head, I don't remember his current title, but he, it's fair to say he's one of the most influential trade advisors in the White House. Right. Gotcha. And, and, and you, I, I think maybe it's fair to say as well that this particular administration has had a, a fairly interesting and unique view on, Ch on its relationship with China, particularly in, re in regards to trade manufacturing um, <laughs> and international policy, so to speak. Or, you know. I, I mean, I, I wonder if you had any thoughts about the whether the i mean i think the timing of this film is 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 just coincidental with with regards to the tariff really? war yeah oh I, well i mean i know they were probably making this film for a while i don't know if they knew in, in with any documentary and it feels like this one in particular they started following a factory closing and then they just kept going and it turned into a thing and then eventually yeah. the obamas got involved i think is this how it sort of played out yeah the obamas um they were uh, filming before the obama yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. before the obama deal but i, I wonder if 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 but if the timing the release is something you could uh, yeah yeah, yeah. I, I wondered about uh, whether the release you know in the now we're in the, the sort of the pre-election you know 2020 election stage whether the release had any sort of uh, particular resonance as well uh, and then and then the other factor is is that uh, the the release of this particular episode coincides with Labor Day uh, which I think will be uh, impactful to our decision oh, to our discussion later on but I wondered um, just in terms of your perspective whether anything that you saw in the film resonated with the work that you're doing as a political journalist or you know like with a you know, I think one of the things that was interesting for me is that this film is kind of uh, a microcosm of the broader discussions that we have about economics, uh, you know, or about politics. This is actually the ground floor of how that plays out in many respects. And I wondered if, if that kind of resonated with you in any way. Yeah, definitely. I think this project is um, 
political from top to bottom. Um, not necessarily everything that the the Obama's new production company is putting out is going to necessarily be as you know directly political, but I think American Factory very much aims to get right in the fray in terms of the conversation about uh, the, the the question of Trump, how he was elected, why he's resonated uh, as he has um, across the uh, uh, especially across the Rust Belt and why he might even be reelected if the Democratic Party doesn't find a way to appeal to the demographic that's at the center of this, which is a lot of um, kind of middle, uh, well, at least formerly sort of uh, middle income, um, non highly educated, but like somewhat, you know, fairly skilled workers. Mm-hmm. Uh Specifically, this film does is a pretty kind of a it's a, it's a multiracial factory and and, and town, but um, this pl- this whole documentary takes place in the heart of oh, at least one of the key uh, quarters of Trump Country, right? Um, and and I don't think that the 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 fact that this is its the debut project for this production company is sort of a coincidence. They definitely want to kind of come out and make a statement, and. Um, you know, this is not, there aren't necessarily explicit partisan statements made in this documentary. It's pretty understated in a lot of ways, but everything that it's trying to tackle thematically and in terms of subjects is absolutely completely political and completely integral to the question of the sort of future viability of the Democratic Party on the presidential level. Yeah. I mean, you even noted, I think, in, in your article for Vice that the that this area was visited twice by Trump and not not at all by Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. in the last election. Yeah, uh, and and I think part of your critique of the film is is whether um, the film is actually an effective um, messaging to to those voters, but but broad, more broadly speaking, uh, is the actual release of the film kind of speaking to maybe a group of voters that the Democratic Party have have kind of forgotten in a way. Um, there, there's something, there's something weird, sort of, uh, for me with with the entirety of it. And when I was reading your article, I, I sort of, it, this all marinated with me, where it's like, this movie, while I think was I- incredibly effective for me, I'll even say that right up front, I was actually riveted with the story, like from top to bottom. Uh, some folks that I was with was were not, um, but I was just sort of like, ooh, like the entire time. But I, with with often with messages like this that. I do agree. Are I think deeply political, um, but then your article was like, but it showed a little bit of uh, you know uh, of Obama or at least a production being out of touch with 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 sort of how this messaging needs to happen in order to affect anything. Like this felt like it was a lot of preaching a bit to a choir. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like I and and it's it's such an interesting dichotomy because I don't think folks that might that this film might benefit uh, helping them educate themselves on on you know different ways that all of this stuff goes down. I don't think those people will ever click on Netflix and watch this thing. Mm. Like I just don't think they will. And here's the other weird side of it too. It's definitely political, but it doesn't call Trump out by name. It do, it's it's not um what's the word I'm looking for? It's not like confrontational politics. Right. And therefore, Trump's going to ignore it unless someone kind of brings it in front of his desk and he gets it, but like it's it's not salacious enough for even him to bother ra- rallying against because I think his team or whatever, uh the administration knows that the people that this might affect negatively for them, they're not going to watch this thing. So, like, the entire time, uh, both while I was watching it and when I was reading your article, I was just very like, oh, yeah, like, I really liked it, but is this the right way to go? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, I think those are, you know, uh, uh, both great points. Um, I would say 
So to take the second one first, I think there's there's just an aesthetic discussion to be had, which is clearly the directors of the documentary wanted to make something that's not didactic, something that is understated, something that um, actually feels very much like a scripted um, like film, like mm-hmm. as in like a fictional enterprise. Like, I mean, just like the sort of way they build characters and the pacing of it and the way that they balance talking to, um, you know, sort of depicting them in their everyday lives, but also getting insight into their inner lives by having them have these monologues while they walk around. Like it's, first of all, it's beautiful. I think a lot of times I thought it was, yeah. but I mean, the way in which they're just sort of telling a story, I think they want all the characters to sort of speak for themselves. And then they would rather leave the viewer to kind of take away um, what they want to take away from it. And I think that's, it's partially, um, you know, it, it, it may be, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a political, you know, uh, decision to make, but it's also clearly an aesthetic one mm. as well. And I do think ultimately, though, in my reading, and maybe it's just, you know, because I am of the left, but I think that it is quite sympathetic to the workers and to the left and their exploitation because of the focus on the episode where Sherrod Brown decides to, mm, like, un- yeah. you know, blindside them yeah. by supporting, which was such a great, great, great scene. <laughs> yeah. When he blindsides them by supporting the labor labor and seeing management sort of scramble around, like, with their heads chopped off and not really <laughs> knowing how to react to the situation. And then showing, like, just, like, how, like, management was just being really, really kind of slimy about stuff, like, admitting to, like, firing workers to prevent them from joining, you know, the union um, or, or organizing further and depicting kind of their misdeeds. And I think that it's one of those things where I think they're like, if they seem to have faith in the process and that if they put everyone's story out there, I think a majority of people there won't necessarily side with all the workers, but I don't think that they're going to view um, the, the sort of, you know, the key, the management and ownership as like good people. Um, people, right. if, you, if you're right wing, you might be like, well, it has to be done. But I don't think they're necessarily going to come away from that. And then well, I don't want to go on too long. No, but please. I was, you know, to your to your other point about, you know, this being, um, you know, who's going to even see this or is in preaching the choir? I mean, so that's kind of a perennial question in all media. Right. Because we have so much. The media environment is so polarized that generally speaking, yeah, like a lot of um, people who are liberal or liberal minded uh, in terms of what they produce are generally speaking, uh, making things for an audience that's sympathetic to them from the off. And they aren't necessarily changing uh, their minds in terms of flipping conservatives to liberals necessarily. That's true. Um, And that's a structural issue. And there aren't really obvious short term answers to that. I don't think that um, it's very easy to see how you can get people who don't trust the media establishment at all and believe in conspiracy theories, for example, or genuinely think of Fox News as a serious news enterprise hmm. to start consuming what's considered liberal stuff. I mean, that's a big question that that's beyond the scope of at least what I can think of right now <laughs> off the sure. top of my head. But what I will say, though, that I think this film does is hopefully for people who are at least sort of centrist and moderates all the way to the left, I would hope to think that it might provoke them to think a little bit differently about the nuances of what labor organizing looks like. And we'll probably get into this a little more in the future, you know, and and later on the conversation, but there are unexpected turns in terms of the way that the Chinese and American workers relate to each other Mm -hmm. and the way that management relates to the workers. And that's something that's valuable regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum. Yes. Regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, you do need to work and you do need to be able to provide for your family. I think that's what, that's one of the, the questions at the core of this, uh, of this film is, 
how does that relationship to your employer actually look in different economic states? And it feels like, I mean, one of the things that feels very interesting that happens in this film is that, you know, the, the team of um, the team of Americans go to China to, yes. to visit their corresponding um, factory. And it, it, it you get a stark difference on what labor looks like in both countries, where in China, for example, they talk about uh, working 12 hour shifts with only one day off a week and living in sort of um, maximum. I think sometimes just a few days a month. Yeah. Yeah. It was, sorry. Yeah. A few days a month um, and almost living in sort of a, a, a tenement housing kind of situation where they're away from their family. Um, versus the American sort of philosophy, which is slightly more based around, um, I guess, uh, post-industrial labor conditions where, you know, we recognize that there needed to be a balance between uh, labor and one's personal life. And so, you know, there's a there's a sort of a sense that you 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 work essentially just to get money in order to do your personal yeah. life. Um, and and I think that that sort of equation is is really at the heart of what the this film is kind of asking because on the one hand you've got China who's you know like into the the sort of capitalist market in 2001 when it joined the World Trade Organization and on the other hand you've got a, a fairly you know predominantly capitalist society as it has been for you know since before World War II, uh, or, you know, as long as it's been in existence. And, and you, you do get a sense of like these, these two different stages that these two countries are in and, and, and how that can affect basically the entire living and working philosophy, because essentially, although, you know, as you sort of pointed out, there is a, uh, a sort of uh, a delightful convergence of Chinese and you know Rust Belt Americans who are willing to come together and have a conversation with each other and even form friendships and you get these sort of wonderful scenes of uh, you know uh, n- newly anointed Chinese immigrants you know wielding guns for example with their with uh, with their new neighbors or or um, or the the Americans going to China and you know learning to speak Chinese and being part of the celebration but ultimately these two cultures as depicted in this film, don't really converge by the end of it and, and seemingly uh, end, well, the narrative as the film depicts it ends with the with a very much them and us or us and them, you know, whichever side you're on. And it's interesting because I think that us and them, something that I really liked about this movie uh, was it showed, at least what, what I sort of took away from it was that the cultural divides in this particular, at least the way it was portrayed in this film. We don't know what ended up on the cutting room floor or how things would ever. But in the beginning of the film, when the when the Chinese came to to buy the factory and get the people the jobs back, they were sort of seen as saviors and welcomed with open arms and everyone was all about it. And then when, you know, productivity was not happening as fast as the, the Chinese owners wanted, uh, they, then that's sort of where the conflict sort of happened. So it was never... I mean, this I, I might be saying the words wrong, but it was never sort of a, a, it seemed in the film a racial issue. It was a cultural issue. Right. Like they they it, it, the way it was presented, at least felt to me like both cultures started not wanting to integrate or work well together when they both saw the other one as too zealous or too lazy. Right. Like that's sort of how and and something that. Oftentimes in films like this, you don't get that full message. Mm. Oftentimes it leans on the other thing, which is an incredibly true and valid thing that should have multiple and then does have tons of documentaries about it, about just pure racial tension. Um, Am I crazy here? Am I going... 
nuts a little bit, or is that too is that too compartmentalized? Or we think did I did I miss something? No, I think both of you have hit the nail on the head. I think that um, going into this film, you might anticipate you know um, what you know Huntington referred to as a clash of civilizations, right? But in in fact, that doesn't happen. And what I really saw was what we could call a clash of class interests. Right. And so, I mean. First, on the point of on, on on you know the racial versus cultural issue, I think you're right. I think, and this is what I mean about how some liberals or just moderates might go into this film and be surprised. There's a huge debate about whether or not Trump support is motivated by what could be called you know you know economic or like racial anxiety. You know, are you racist or is it poverty that drove you? And there's a lot of empirical evidence that racial resentment played a huge role. It's a hu- much, much clearer predictor of support for Trump than, say, being um, experiencing economic hardship. The, you know, the sort of archetypal Trump voter is actually not a white working class voter. It's actually a white voter who comes from an above median income household. Right. And um, this, uh, basically, when you start watching this documentary, you might assume that you're going to see uh, all these... Um, Rust Belt uh, Americans who have been sitting there, not you know, jobless for years, have all these Chinese workers come in, and they're just going to be based on the sort of data and this discussion about the sort of you know the nationalism and the racism behind Trump. Oh, that all these people are going to be incredibly racist and say all these like chauvinistic and jingoistic things and instead like you know i mean it may obviously partially be a function of editing but ultimately like no that doesn't happen they're actually getting along well you said like there's a lot of you know some of them build some really serious friendships one of the yeah. one of the guys was talking about how he calls him his like chinese brother and yeah. they all have you know some of them obviously assimilate and really are excited by the u.s and they build these real great bonds and so it's it's clearly not mainly xenophobia or racism that is a problem there. And what really happens is there's a difference in their attitudes towards um, the culture of work mm. and economic culture. And you know, back you know back to the earlier point of like they they have different perspectives on on capitalism and how regulated it should be. And so you know, the grand irony when some people on the right criticize, I don't know, still to this day, some of them will be like criticize China as 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 sort of like. Uh, communist in a way that's meant to tie it back to you know the mm-hmm. the area uh, er, the the era of Mao. In in reality, China is in some some ways more cutthroat, capitalist, yeah. unregulated than you know the U.S. was even in the you know in the early twentieth uh, century. It, its industrialization is so ruthless, and um, they are so effective at repressing uh, labor uprisings and movements that there is in certain places, you know, truly just it's not I'm not saying that people who are Chinese workers want this to be the case, but it's just an expected norm that you don't have labor rights, that it's considered fussy to ask for a safe workplace, that you would be able to, uh, you know, get weekends off. I'm not saying I'm not trying to suggest that that's ubiquitous across China. There are lots of different views, but clearly the workers they show in the film have very different standards. They think, well, if you're getting a living wage and get a few days off a month and you've you're that's golden. Yeah. And so I think the clash we're seeing is different attitudes towards what are what what constitute economic rights what constitute social rights and and specifically the way it really the, the nucleus of that kind of energy and the kind of scorn that develops is from higher up management and the CEO who is kind of like this cartoonish kind of <laughs> capitalist villain who has this kind of I thought he's kind of had like a cold affect and sort of small and didn't really connect with anyone yeah 
And there were some really interesting sequences where the, he does talk about how he's a little bit introspective about it all. But yeah. really, he's just a billionaire who loves money. And he's the one pushing this down. You can see this top-down effort to just destroy the morale of, not destroy the morale of American workers, but basically, like, you know, just whip them into shape as aggressively as possible. And that, I think that's, an, that, 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 is takes place along an economic axis rather than one that is racial and then the kind of connective glue that you could is, is kind of a cultural um sort of element there so it's complicated it's not like ch the chinese americans workers don't aren't different they do come from very different backgrounds but i think what pushes kind of can divide them is a different sense of economic identity and you, that 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 culture cultural glue that you kind of mentioned is really prevalent in the way that um, I think we get the sense that the Chinese workers aren't questioning, you know, as you mentioned, aren't questioning the labor practices that are in place, or there doesn't seem to be the sort of response that you might hear from first generation immigrants and, you know, uh, that, that you might have or that we imagine where people come to America and kind of assimilate into American culture and all the, 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 the sort of trappings of American culture that, that people expect, which is, you know, good working hours, um, you know, like potential union membership, uh, weekends off and that kind of thing. Instead, what we see here is a is a Chinese culture that or you know a culture of people that are coming in who see it as detrimental to their way of life and I wonder if that is a pro byproduct of essentially how the Communist Party works and their sort of uh, ability to stamp down propaganda their ability to stamp down um, uh, popular uprisings or you know like the, the the protests in Hong Kong right now are sort of an interesting response to to I guess the the, the overall Chinese imperative to to stamp out um, you know Know, dissidents, and I, I, I think that that kind of heart of it struck me as sort of is a very complex thing. And I think the 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 way it manifests itself is when people refer to Chim, you know, to, to the 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 billionaire who owns this place, uh, Cao De Wang. Um, is you know Chairman Cow, you know, which obviously just rings in the ears of Chairman Mao, uh, and he has that sort of Maoish sort of appearance and figure. But but you know, like I, I do. I guess this does happen in American culture as well, but it seems that there is a uh, a willingness to con to curtail your rational your rational ability to think through problems when the chairman asks you to do something. So you see it right at the very beginning of the film, where uh, the chairman basically says, "I don't want this um, fire, fire alarm. alarm here. I want it here." And there, you know, you suddenly see all these people scrambling to figure out why that would be the case or what we have to do. Or a garage door that's going to cost $30,000 to to move, kind of, it, it's just simply the case that you will have to do it. And the most interesting part of that to me is the former president of the Fuyao um, uh, factory, the, and I've forgotten his name, uh, but the, the obviously the American who was laid off uh, during the middle of the film, who obviously when um, uh, Sherrod Brown <laughs> mentions the union thing, flies off the handle and he says something along the lines of not his place, he's never stepping foot on this fucking factory again. But then after he's fired... I want to take the giant scissors and cut off his head. Yeah, 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 yeah Everyone's exactly. like, really what, he says, yeah. what? Yeah, you know, <laughs> essentially he could, you know, he like, I guess he falls in line. But then later in the film we see him again driving past the factory that he's been fired from and he's suddenly more sympathetic and more empathetic to the mm -hmm. union movement and he's suddenly like yeah I think the workers here need something was he the one that said you can't spell uh, Fuya without F-U yeah exactly okay. at the yeah. end yeah, yeah. and I, it, it's, it's a fascinating transformation that happens you know and I, I wonder I, I guess I was curious if if any of us ever thought that the prolonged presence of uh, these Chinese families in America might 
influence them to think about labor slightly differently or whether it's just simply a case of we're coming in, we're a factory, we're going to work our way and then we're going to leave. And I, 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 it was a curious ongoing question that I had, you know, watching the, the, I guess, responding to what you're saying about this cultural divide that's in the film. I actually, yeah, I, I thought... <laughs> it's weird because you wonder like okay because everything let's just talk about like the bubble of that town right mm -hmm. like what the chinese were hoping was that they could turn the americans into their way of a workforce and then they still get the good pr of saving a town and like it's still you know it's a win on that regard and then that would also in a weird way I mean, somewhere along the line, prove that like, yeah, this is how people should work. Because look at these, you know, we did this and like, yeah. So I think that was almost like a, a bit of an experiment maybe on uh, obviously the company's part, maybe the chairman's part or whatever. But then you have the other side of it where it's like, well, or what will happen? Will the Chinese workers see how the American workers are uh, living and working and want more of that? And the thing that happened oddly is i think the resentment between the two happened before that at least the way it was presented happened before that sort of transference could occur mm. because then it just became resentment like the 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 american workers at, at by the end of the film it's really only chinese workers are all the high up positions and american workers are pretty much all the the low end positions make up the labor force yeah so at that point you're no longer even debating how to work you are now like oh the top is screwing us and or the top is like the bottom is screwing us so i it, it's interesting how like it 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 try, like it felt like this experiment was trugging along and then basically uh cultural differences made it so it kind of ground that to a halt or at least that experiment <laughs> um i i want to come back to something that you wrote in your article um i guess you know the um the Obama presidency was an interesting one to observe because, you know, uh, obviously he came in on a wave of hope and change and and sort of a a, a more liberal leaning um, affectation than we'd had in the previous Bush years. Um, but but you mentioned something in your article, which was that the I guess maybe the the major criticism of Obama's presidency was that he was perhaps too much of a bipartisan or too much of a statesman, um, you know, who believed in, in the willingness for people to talk their way out of uh, uh, or negotiate uh, differing ideologies. And I think you, you um, in, your, in your sort of assessment of the film, mentioned that you think that this might kind of categorize him as being slightly out of touch with the, the more uh, separatist uh, or, or the more divided states of America that we live in today. I'm curious, you know, like where that, that idea came from for you in regards to this film. Yeah, so um, basically the Obamas have a short conversation with the directors that you can either catch on social media or on Netflix. Right, at, It plays right after the film, yeah, I think, does. automatically. Yep. It's pretty brief. It's about 10 minutes. Um, and it's sort of sprawling and honestly, it's a little unsatisfying cause it just, it's so shallow. And I feel like all four of the people there have something, a lot of smart things to say. I hated that thing. Mm -hmm. I was going to talk about it. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I hated it. And I hated the way that it was shot. I thought yeah. it was shot in such a terrible way, especially totally. after watching that film that was shot so well, it was jarring. Uh, the, the way that they had, uh, both women in the, in the shot framed was like way too tight. Um, with, uh, Michelle Obama's hair 
like covered her entire face for half of when she was speak. Like there was a million <laughs> things you could do to sort of fix this. Just two people sitting in a empty diner with coffee mugs, drinking water out of the coffee mugs. Very natural. I, like yeah, very yeah. natural. Real this, America. We are yeah. having a conversation in middle America. It, it felt very much like it was done by Netflix as a PR push for this film. Sure. Yeah. Oh, it was, but like. I mean, it's basically the reason the Obamas are involved. You know, it's probably the extent to which the Obamas are actually involved in the film. But it, is to give it a presence uh, for people to see it. Like, would you have sought out this film? Sure. If if the Obama's name wasn't attached. But to my it? my point is, if you're going to do that, <laughs> then do that. I mean, we we've had people on this show who have done amazing um, PR work, uh, video work for the Obama administration. Right. That is effective and and engaging at least to the base it's trying to get to. And this was like. <laughs> it felt so weird. Anyway, I cut no, you. I'm so no, sorry. No, no, no. I'm, I'm glad we're in total agreement about that. I didn't even think to kind of be apply a critical lens while watching and only while just bringing it up now being like, that was awful. That was, just, <laughs> that was awful. And like it was chopped up in weird ways. So you didn't even know what they were referring to at yep. certain points. Yeah. And I had to rewatch it several times just to sort of make sure I was deducing the right things. And um, yeah, so this conversation was, uh, in addition to being sort of, you know, unsatisfying in terms of in terms of its depth was strangely sort of like upbeat and sanguine in some mm-hmm. ways i mean of course like you know they're doing pr they're not going to be moping but <laughs> the documentary is really bleak actually there's yeah. i think the conclusion is that workers in these sorts of sectors that are being automated and more and more prone to international markets have nowhere good to go and it's there are possible solutions which i discussed in the article and you know we may talk about but it's not a good thing. And yet, oh, the, there's a lot of upbeat talk, and, and, and specifically Obama continually seems to hint at and then explicitly suggest the idea that, that one of the major takeaways from this film is how people can sort of basically connect with other people politically by getting to talk with each other in person, getting to know each other, and basically, like, you know, see each other as human beings, and then they kind of get in on the same page and and all of a sudden things are better and that specific sentiment is classic obama it's like one of the most obama things uh to exist part of the very premise of his presidency was that he would be able to sort of quote fix washington um because he was so concerned with listening to the other side of the aisle and reaching out and he was so such a compromise oriented polit- politician and you know going back to his background as a community organizer and he's always known among his advisors for being very consensus oriented listening to a lot of people and so it's it's clear that he was sort of talking about something that he's talked about for a long time but if you watch the documentary it's like is that what you took away from this, because I had the opposite takeaway, which is that even though we see these sort of heartwarming stories of the Chinese and American workers getting along well, sometimes overall what happens is the American workers lose a rigged union mm-hmm. um, union organizing effort after being sort of brutally exploited by their foreign employers and by like a set of management that's willing to do anything, a lot of it as 
probably illegal. Yeah. As as I you know I I I was shocked that it's that that they would have this allowed access for that sort of stuff. I assume you're it talking is about illegal. the Labor Relations Institute uh, coming in and, and the giving. way the way they came in and their sort of intimidation, and then the way that the guy was <laughs> basically saying we're firing people, Legally. we're organizing. That is not legal, as right. I understand. It. I mean, yeah. they may have some sort of slippery way of doing it. There's the implication, which was really great. They shot this woman being like they deliberately gave me too much work yeah. so they can give me a poor performance record and then justify kicking me out. So maybe that's how they pulled it off legally. Yeah. But strategically, their intention yeah. was to target people who were viewed as rebellious workers and get rid of them. Uh, you're not supposed to be able to do that. Right. Um, and, and so it's really striking. So, th- I mean, the story that this tells is that they're, you know, getting to know each other in person and the Chinese and American workers and their managers having unexpectedly sort of amicable relationship. And even when the American workers went over to China and kind of had this fun party and there's one guy who broke down crying because he was like, we're just one world. And it was like really funny and saccharine and kind of sweet. <laughs> he was very drunk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's no, really yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. He was drunk. <laughs> but it was just like, it was so amusing. But like the point was like, there weren't, there wasn't enmity in in a sense of like people hating each other. It was not a matter of dehumanization. It was a matter of a business that was willing to do whatever it needed to get, you know, just extract as much productivity as possible. It's just a classic tale of capitalist exploitation. And this the conclusion that I think one should draw is that like, wow, these workers are not protected mm-hmm. at all. And the Chinese workers who I sounds like some of them are going to go back to China are going to be even in worse shape. And this is a classic example of, of how like coming down and talking isn't enough. And that specifically the way the unionization effort went down and there's all this shady maneuvering is a sign that like, People are. It's a story of 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 a, a, a clash of of wills and someone coming out on top because they had more power. It's not. It's a beautifully told story. It's not a happy story. No, right. with an automation icing on the cake. I mean, then there's the whole issue of that that they just sort of plop on in the last ten minutes. That's going to screw even yeah. more workers. <laughs> yeah. it, it was almost like I loved this documentary so hard, and I still do for for the the film itself. But that ten minute. Obama, Michelle, uh, and Barack, and the 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 directors of the film uh, interview at the end left such a bad taste in my mouth. The same thing, what you just said, like it it was like uh, Barack Obama watched the first half of the movie and was like, "I got it. This is great." <laughs> like and like didn't because like yeah, if you shut it off in the middle, that's the message. But there's like forty five minutes to an hour of no, that doesn't work. So it's it was really um, shocking I, I, and shuddering to me. I guess I guess uh, um, from my point of view is I, I think in hindsight, Obama's sort of, uh, I guess, political naivete, I mean, we'd call it political naivete about the, the state of the world that we live in uh, and uh, is somewhat... Um, is somewhat a good problem compared to where we are actually today, True. you know. Like, yep. and so to me, to me, his his uh, his approach, I think, is more reflective of of the reason he wants people to see the film, or the reason why he wants to put his name to the film, as opposed to the solutions that he that Barack Obama, the politician, might want to approach having watched the film. But I can also and, yeah. see how those are damaging. Like, the, mm-hmm. just the, the, having the belief in a good thing that people might do, and then watching it not happen, that doesn't particularly help the situation. Like, it's good to talk about it that way, and it's good to sort of focus on, yeah, you know what, in a, mac, uh, in a micro setting, mm-hmm. this 100% seems like it works. If, if two people 
that have never met each other from different cultures are given a task and have to work together to pull it off, as long as there's not some crazy, like, uh, either, like, something so different about the cultures that, like, they can't physically understand each other, most likely they will come out as at least being amicable and possibly friends. But then you get into the macro sort of perspective of everything where it's a little bit more complicated than that. It, it, you, we're dealing with with socioeconomic <laughs> structures that are vastly different, and they treat individual cogs vastly different. And I, I, I man, it, oh, God, that interview rubbed me the wrong way. It was the first time in a long time, and even after reading your article, I was like, it, it sort of solidified my opinion, and I felt, I almost felt when I watched that interview before I read your article, I felt a little crazy. <laughs> I was like, am I disagreeing with Obama? Because <laughs> like, I, I really, in, I, I agree with a lot of Obama's uh, policy. I agree with a lot of the way he, I, I agree with the positivity and like, I, I, I love, or let me rephrase, I love all that. And it's become sort of a little bit, in my opinion, that water of that works has become muddied. And the fact that it's a little bit, he's still saying the same thing, even though he just showed me a thing that kind of disproves his point. I was like, oh, no. I, I guess I would say I think he felt on brand. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> but I, I, I'm curious. I guess like, I guess the, the alternative thing would be is uh, what if this was um, American Factory as presented by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, I guess. You know, like what, mm. would, what would that conversation Ooh. be at the end of the film if, uh, if those two candidates were, to, were discussing the outcome of the film? And I, and I guess that's really what you're, what you're talking about, which is that to me, Obama seems exactly on brand in terms of, you know, like how we expect him to respond to uh, people creating art in any in any sphere, which is to, to celebrate it. Uh, but the actual, you know, I think the point you're making is the actual reality of what happened in this scenario speaks broader to a kind of a darker undertone to the possible ramifications of what unfitted capitalism looks like mm-hmm. uh, for individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the idea of, you know, envisioning Warren or Sanders in this conversation is, is a great kind of thought exercise mm-hmm. because it's pretty clear that if they were in this, you know, director's chat afterwards, they would be talking about how this is clear evidence that we need to really, really boost labor protections for workers. That's, I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't think they would necessarily have identical takeaways, but they would both push that point because it's very clear that if there were, there was a more muscular labor movement, if there were stronger protections for people organizing, preventing them from like getting fired because they're organizing, if it was easier and faster to organize, if there was more regulation against, you know, external consultants that come in for millions of dollars and basically intimidate people and play mind games with them and convince them that they're probably going to lose the only job they've had in five years. If we just had, generally speaking, a more robust social safety net so that people wouldn't be absolutely existentially terrified of losing their job because it means the end of their life. Yeah. Um, you know, those workers would have, there could have been a different outcome in that situation. And I think that, and, and that's the thing about, you know, why it's, it's interesting to think that, you know, it may be the documentary was made uh, 10 years ago. Maybe Obama's saying, talking about how we should all try to appeal to each other's better angels by like, you know, reaching across the aisle or talking to, you know, breaking bread with your political enemy. That's a, you know, that's a good thing. It might have seemed a little bit more tolerable, but in this moment when 
everyone's just digging deeper into their trenches and pulling out artillery. Like it just feels so tone deaf for this political moment. You know, I'm to the very far to the left in terms of the way I view the world. So I was always had kind of a left critique of Obama, but it's really interesting to hear someone who is a little bit more sympathetic to his worldview and then kind of not souring on it, but realizing or thinking that in some ways it's inadequate for where we are today is a pretty compelling point. And, um, I, 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 well, I well, sorry. One thing I will just say about that is the, the, the my last takeaway because I don't want to keep harping on this ten minute. We're not. This is not the only podcast about the ten minute interview <laughs> after the film American Factory. Uh, we should be talking about dominate American this Factory. niche. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, technically, we we might be. Um, but um, the 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 meme because I think in those ways these days because the internet uh, that I kept thinking of during that entire interview was that meme that two frame cartoon with the cartoon dog in the fiery room with the with the cup and then the next one is just holding him goes. This is fine. Yeah, like that was just, and I was like, no, <laughs> it's not. And that's it was kind of that. It was an odd. It was like I guess souring is sort of, I think possibly the correct, um, the correct feeling of what I was feeling in that moment. Well, I wanted to. I, I guess I wanted to be the, uh, uh, and and I'm I'm not uh, right wing by nature, but I kind of wanted to to look at it from that perspective and and think about perhaps the other side of it, which is that you do have this sort of aggressively capitalistic uh, enterprise coming in that is, a you know, like very much about uh, efficiency and, and, and it, you know, in its very nature is a, is a stake in globalized, you know, manufacturing, you know, it's basically a Chinese company com- coming to America. And the, the sort of counter narrative to everything that we're talking about, which is labor rights, is the efficiency and, and, and question of, productivity in a globalized economy where this Chinese company has the ability to be entirely transnational and is only and and it's its reason for being here is obviously to gain access to the American marketplace and and to have a to an actual geographic location in America mm-hmm. but but ultimately if it's labor if the labor conditions aren't um, favorable to the company here why would it not just go to um, Vietnam or Laos or somewhere like that, where it can you know basically run rampant in terms of uh, in terms of labor practices and and only you know and pay fractions on the dollar, and and the question that I have there is, do we think that there's any validity? <laughs> and I know we're all three of us in this room probably don't, but but do we think that there's any validity to the question of? What happens if a if a fuyao doesn't exist in this in this community? You know, like like these are you know as you've identified as you know documentaries like um, Roger and Me, Michael Moore's film about the closing of the General Motors plant. Um, you know, kind of illustrate is that these communities are entirely dependent upon manufacturers coming in and actually providing labor or providing opportunities for them. What happens when we are in an entirely automated society? When we're in an entirely uh, globalized community where you know, um, efficiency is based is not based on geography and staying in one place, but actually just moving. You know, up, uprooting and, and moving. What happens to these people if if Fuyao doesn't exist here? I, I I have a short sort of I guess addendum or answer I guess for me. Fuya is not a cure for what ails them. No, Fuya Fuya is a. Uh, 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 a medicine that they will sell them at a cost and see if they can abate the symptoms of the problem for as long as they can until it eventually collapses because of course it will. I think if Fuya didn't come in here, it, weirdly enough, and who knows, uh, this is so complicated that me jammering on that I just came up with an idea five minutes ago is not the solution. But if Fuya didn't come in and that town went pure to like further to the, the shitter than it, than it already had, 
um, if more and more, this is a terrible sort of thought, but like in this thought experiment, if that happened there and nowhere else was getting sort of like these jobs back, the more things collapse, it could go one of two ways. Either the government could finally be like, oh, shit and try to do something constructive to rebuild or it would devolve on our side into working conditions just like Fuya brought to uh to America like those are sort of the two directions I see it going if that's the case um I don't know sorry uh what, what do you what do you think about this one yeah I mean I agree there's a huge structural issue here and I just think that trying to I don't think the value add of the American economy is going to be through non like high end manufacturing. Right. Um, you know, I spoke to um, a really smart, um, you know, sort of trade and economic analyst, um, Todd Tucker at the Roosevelt Institute. After watching this uh, film, a lot of times opinion columns might seem like they're just you know yep. the person <laughs> hammering on. But I like to do a lot of research and I like to talk to people. Right. And you know, he was talking about the idea of this. A, access to the market, but even more than that, he was actually saying majority of a lot of the reason this Chinese company may have invested in the U.S. is is business diplomacy. And what he referred to, if I'm paraphrasing, although this may be what he said, was just sort of like a um, kind of like a response to the China shock. Like um, and the idea being China's being vilified for taking away all the jobs in the U.S., so they'll comp, you know, they'll compensate for that by coming back over and uh, creating new jobs, and in that way, sort of ease some of the tensions that might be providing the political capital for Trump to wage a trade war against China. So there's a business diplomacy element. There's another part of circumventing tariffs yeah. that are going up and potentially being able to have easier access to. Um, to uh, the markets in, in across North America um, that you want to provide to. Um, but overall, this is so heavily symbolic and political because um, the work they're doing there, my sense is, and I'm not an expert in manufacturing, but it strikes me as sort of like moderately skilled. It's definitely not unskilled labor, but it's definitely also not highly skilled labor. And a lot of these sorts of jobs could definitely be outsourced very easily. And if your primary concern is making them as cheap as possible and you ultimately decide that the, the if you can compensate for labor, uh, the more expensive shipping costs or tariffs mm. by doing it elsewhere, they're going to do that. That's the bottom line. So this is, you know, as you're saying, saying it's not in the, in the long run, this is not a, there's no winning strategy here behind trying to revive this kind of manufacturing uh, in the U.S. I mean, you need really, really high-end stuff um, to be really competitive in global markets. And the bigger answer beyond even labor regulations, which would have just helped on a kind of case-by-case basis, is just focusing your economy on the things where you actually value, add value to the global economy. And in the meantime, providing a combination of social services and sophisticated retraining and reskilling programs to help people who did one thing their whole life and now can no longer make money out of it. And that's always easier said than done and no one's and it's also really hard for workers to even admit sometimes that they're not going to do what their parents did and what they've right. been doing their whole lives and yeah. it's not easy to switch to a different sector when you're in your 40s or 50s and for some people it may almost be emotionally impossible um but that's where you need to invest your energy it's not like 
it all goes to the sort of question of like Trump's politics are nostalgia politics. Like all right. the stuff he says about coal country are just like it's just bullshit because yeah. like it's not coming back. It's li- just playing on people's, you know, longing for a day when they could make a decent amount of money. You know, one person could support a whole household doing that kind of work that felt very straightforward and honest. But you're also just, you know, it's a classic sort of used car salesman politics. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, yeah, you just fast talking, you give someone and then like it dies like, you know, like a year later as you roll off the lot. Say the slogan, you you know, like it's like it's it's pure. Yeah, I like that sort of like nostalgia politics. It's the it's it's the. It's the message du jour of what that he what he does. The, the coal thing is funny. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to be like, yeah, that's what I was thinking of too. Like this is this is a thing that is not coming back. Even the end of this film <laughs> proves automation that is automation is the thing. Yeah. Automation. The second the second that they they can afford to maintain machines to do all these things, that factory's not going. Well, maybe, here's the thing. Maybe that factory will be there. Maybe there'll be more foreign factories in America to get around the tariffs and things when they don't have to deal with an American workforce. And if that's the case, that might also displace uh, people and financially in a whole different way. I mean, I guess I guess the point here is that uh, uh, education, uh, re-education, uh, reforming healthcare, reforming social structures, reforming uh, the social security net are, is not as sexy an answer as bring back coal, right? Like it's that, mm. that's that's the kind of political uphill battle that I think um, Warren and Sanders, you know, I, I guess we're I, I'm seeing them as kind of you know leaning more into that conversation uh, are going to have which is that it is not as a sexy answer. And it's also structurally difficult to make the kinds of changes that they're implementing. And, and I guess one thing, being a foreigner, kind of thinking about um, the way uh, labor unions have been vilified in this country is that there is this unusual relationship that American manufacturing has to labor unions. And I, 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 can, I can only... Uh, postulate that it comes from like the Jimmy Hoffa kind of image of of labor unions and you know the the, the Teamsters and the, the sort of idea of corrupt labor unions and things like that. But I I, I you know like again I wasn't born here so I'm, I'm kind of just and it, and it's very unusual to me that the idea that that a labor union would be uh, destructive to uh, to you know and not in the in the interest of the workforce seems very foreign to me but it seems very it's different in New Zealand well New Zealand has a lot of structural integrity in terms of employment relations you know like labor unions exist in New Zealand but not to the degree that they exist here because employment relation act, you know there's a very stringent set of government regulations which determines how you can employ how you can fire how you can you know what your benefits are you know like paid paid leave is kind of you know uh mandatory and that sort of thing so we, you know we're obviously on a different scale to to, to the sure. united states but the but but it's something that I sort of saw in healthcare in America as well. There's this sort of intense vilification of uh, some form of socialized healthcare, or in the case, of, and in the case of labor unions, an intense vilification of labor unions. I, I, I wonder where that idea stems from, or why it feels so prevalent. And you know, it's so prevalent in this film. Uh, obviously, the 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 management of Fuyao. You know, they're they're absolutely adamant that the 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 thing that will drive them away is a labor union. So I I think it's just the way that Americans have always been. Uh, <laughs> and I'm this is going to be my first Marvel reference of this entire podcast. Okay. But in Captain America: Civil War, <laughs> uh, there's a, a a a moment where Sharon Carter is quoting Peggy Carter at Peggy Carter's funeral, <laughs> and it's something along the lines of uh, Peggy would say, "If you saw something wrong, uh, you know, or whatever," and and even the world says that you need to move. 
that you should say, no, you move. And there's this, I'm not saying, like, that seems as a, as sort of a, a nicer sentiment of what they're trying to say, but there is a deeply American sentiment of kind of having to be right all of the damn time. I mean, it's it's... But 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 America is also the birthplace of the labor movement. You know, like it's also like, I know. like 1870. I know, but, but you know, like you, you take the those... Hawthorne riots is, is, is all about. So there's a group <laughs> of people that are 100 percent like, no, dummies, we need protections. And this is something that is very important. And like, da, 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 da. and then you have other people. And it's the same fear mongering that, that the companies in this documentary did that are coming and they're going to be like. Do you want another governing organization taking away your freedoms? Wouldn't you rather just talk to me? Now you got to talk to this person who has to approve a thing and whatever. That's not independence. And it's it's that mixing of A, all, like I feel like wanting to maintain your, your independence, and B, never admitting that you are wrong. <laughs> I can even – look, and I can't speak to growing up anywhere outside of this country, but even in a small New Hampshire town – like my dad was in construction, but he was not in a union. Um, I don't, I haven't I picked his brain lately, but I do remember talking to him, I think in high school when I was first learning about what unions were. And he's like, no, it's a pain in the ass. Mm. And I was like, oh, so in my head, again, just one simple conversation for the longest time, I was like, oh, unions are a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of learn about the, the Hoffa-esque Shahir, sort mm -hmm. of what you said, like, oh, maybe they're like seedy. And then there's like this weird sort of, I don't know, it, there's there's a there's a poisoning of information or there's a twisting of information. I think that's even more of an accurate sort of thing where Americans seem to value their independence over their well-being. And it's weird, and I've just started noticing it during this garbage fire that we're living through right now. And even though it has been incredibly prevalent and I can look back and be like, oh, geez. Um, so I think it's just this deep-seated, no-you-move mentality. Even, even with the retraining, right? Like, who, I, I, I would, onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com, if you know anyone who is an actual coal miner, <laughs> I, I would love to talk to someone who has mined coal their entire life and see if, what what is the thing that they enjoy about mining coal? Is it going in the mine and breathing all their shit and bringing the stuff out? Or is it the... <laughs> Is it the idea that you are contributing to something and that you are good at a skill and therefore you feel like your existence has value? And I would argue that most times it's not the actual act of mining coal. It's that I've been trained in this. I am good at this. People say I have value because I have this job. And I, I mean, I would be true. Look, I've been I've been debating sort of like, you know, eventually will I stay in New York forever? If I move out of New York and I lose my current job where I can just work from anywhere, I'm screwed in my industry. I would have to get a different job. I would have to be retrained. And even in my head, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and I do, like, easy, dumb computer work. <laughs> so so I can already see that sort of fear of, like, well, my value will go away. And how do you train that out of a, a, a culture of people that not only are taught that, you know, that is your value, but also, a again, I'll go back to a no-you-move mentality. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think both of you are hitting on the sort of multiple strands that coexist and are often at war with each other in American political life. Um, uh, you know, I think it's absolutely right that uh, hyper individualism and uh, a sort of fetishization of, 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 you know, responsibility of 
you know, of oneself is one of the sort of foundational, you know, part of the foundational ethos of American society. And, you know, it goes back, you know, to colonial times in terms of just existing in a land where after, of course, indigenous Americans were wiped out in various ways, um, horrifically, but uh, basically people said, all right, this is, you know, there's a kind of a libertarian uh, attitude that prevails when you have a very, very small group of people um, trying to you know, slowly expanding over an, a massive continent with unfathomable amounts of natural resources and just being able to kind of just go out and kind of set out on your own and do what you want, you know, in, you know, to varying degrees based on what kind of money you came from as, 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 a, as a colonist. But um, that sort of sense of freedom and, uh, and 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 bounty, I think, is really inscribed into sort of the you know the American political imagination, and has a really really powerful current. And the right has the you know the sort of people on the right in in the U.S. have been able to sort of very kind of through the sort of collective jujitsu basically convince people on the left that like if they believe in like collective rights of any kind like worker rights like are they they're like almost anti-american right and don't get what like the country is at about you know about at its core and then a lot of times we'll suppress like you're saying the kind of great you know uh historic uh <laughs> labor battles that have um you know set you know, great examples for other movements uh around the world and a lot of american workers have done great things in terms of changing what we view as like acceptable amount of hours or work conditions um you know when it was really militant it's pretty amazing just like going to war with employers yeah you know with you know having shootouts with them on the streets <laughs> and um becoming you know having labor leaders be the sort of people who you know actual titans of industry were legitimately afraid of right um but that sort of history is um not taught very much in i think a lot of high school curricula for example i think labor history was something i never learned about until basically i taught it myself by like reading like howard zinn and noam chomsky right. and reading yeah. about it during university and i also found that i wasn't uh able to and 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 another part of it is just the fact that i think since the reagan era um the 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 sort of right wing has had really set the terms of debate in terms of how Americans view, you know, what's considered um, an acceptable level of government in political life and have been able to kind of convince, again, anyone from the left saying like, you know, maybe we should have a more robust government is sort of anti-freedom. Um, and since the Reagan era, up until about 2016, the Democrats have been playing on, a, you know, a, 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 on a playing field that has been created by the right and oftentimes funded by right-wing extremists, uh, capitalist interests. Have, sorry? Rest in peace, David. Yeah, Cook. exactly. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, Alec, for example, that, you know, basically <laughs> genuinely mass-producing legislation for state legislatures to use, uh, uh, you know, everywhere in the country where there are any right-wing politicians to put forward proposals, for instance, to protect, like, extractive industries and make sure they're not regulated at all. And the right has been a lot more effective, both in terms of rhetorically setting the debate on a national level and also seeping into state houses and, and just setting the terms of how we talk about like what constitutes freedom and have successfully managed to convince people that labor unions are at best a pain in the ass and at worst 
a direct threat to like what we understand about what it means to be an American. The bounty thing you said you struck a hard chord. <laughs> like I think that really does go back to like the, the truth of the matter is that's a hundred percent how the, you know our current America was founded. Of course, not dealing with not just you know talking about the Native Americans who we took it from, um, and of course, and sorry, slavery, I didn't say slavery, yeah. and slavery. Yes. Obviously, who. It's obviously a given that they were yes. excluded we're talking about from white colonists. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I'm saying the idea <laughs> the idea of going across a, like you said, land with vast resources and just if you had enough either chutzpah or investment, you could go and just some luck. And, 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 yeah. and some yeah, like and just go get stuff. Because it's all there, it's all yours. It's all there for the taking. And I do think that a, a lot of that American ideology still holds true, but the problem is that's not the case now like there's you can't do that people can't do that and now corporations or either the right or however varying government government excuse me governing bodies are still trying to sell the of course you can mm-hmm. because it's in their best interest anyway I, that that's one thing i court. just want to add really quickly if you don't mind i just of course there's also just a failure of communism in the 20th century and the failure of the soviet experiment and the way that that provided um, a very, it got a lot of traction as an argument against any kind of collective organizing. And so if you were part of a union, then you could be complicit with or considered as part of a slippery slope to creating, you know, just an absolute sort of dystopian hellscape in the U.S. And so I think a lot of up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, partially the reason, you know, the, the sort of framing of uh, small government being the best government and everyone keeps themselves because, well, the other option is, you know, the other alternative is we all start becoming part of an authoritarian state and we're sent to work camps. And it's only with, you know, we see millennials who don't really have a memory of that because most of them were born when they're too young to even understand you know, the sort of debates of going on during, um, you know, the, the mm-hmm. debates about communism in the 20th yeah. century where socialism is becoming something that is considered non-threatening. And along with that, there is a potential for labor politics to be considered something that's not uh, perilous. Listen, this is America, and we're going to make our own dystopian hellscape our way, okay? We're going to do it on our own, and it's going to be independently nightmarish. I, I, think, uh, I think to speaking to what, you say, what you're saying is like I think one of the successes of the Cold War was stamping out the idea that uh, communism had anything, had any place in America or, or it's social, you know, socialist identities. You know, like we even, uh, I think even in Bernie's rhetoric, we, it, it's hard to kind of get over the hump of a socialist Democrat, you know, like that. I think that word seems to have a stigma associated with it, probably because of the, the history of antagonism towards the communists and, and, and socialist identity. But I'm, I'm, I, I want to kind of wrap out this thought uh, experiment with one, with one question, which was that your entire, um, your premise of, of the article that you wrote and, and you're thinking about this film was based upon the idea that, that and, and I think of what you just said, which is that there is a, perhaps a naivete on the, on the democratic side to what the playing field actually looks like um, for, for anyone to have the argument that would cause a, a situation like Fuya to, to end successfully for workers. I'm curious if, if you wanted to reframe the conversation around this film, what, you know, like perhaps for a Bernie Sanders or perhaps for an Elizabeth Warren, what do you think the takeaway from this film would be in terms of reframing the conversation that this film provokes? You know, I'd say one of the clear takeaways of uh, this film is that 
uh, on one hand, uh, divides between people of different nationalities or races are not necessarily uh, going to create unbridgeable differences between people. Even over great linguistic barriers, people um, can find ways to connect with each other and, 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 and potentially even find shared interests. And yet, at the same time, the deeper underlying class interests that uh, exist some, both behind and alongside these sorts of racial identities can still play a huge factor in making it so that people can get along. And the reality is politics is about clashing over who controls power. And unfortunately, even though, uh, you know, Obama offered a very inspirational message of how everyone can unite through this great sort of, you know, vessel of, of hope in, in, a, in a great sort of multiracial democracy where people know how to talk with each other and talk through problems. Politics is ultimately a, a form of war. And I don't think that there, I think there are limits to what you can get done by connecting with each other interpersonally. And I think this film captures how complicated it is to surmount those kinds of obstacles. The reality is I get why certain people in that environment would not want to join the union, for example, because not only, you know, they're, they're, the, the propaganda against the union was successful. Uh, they didn't know who to trust. They have no options. They have no social safety net to fall back on. Like, what's going to, if that, if that, what's the next job they're going to have if they lose that one? And it, it, it's, you know, that's another takeaway, which is also just, and it's a bleak one, which is that there are really no good short-term options for these people. And the reality is it's, there's going to need, there's needs to be deep, deep structural institutional shifts in the way the economy deals with workers who are part of something that is just, you know, a sector that's really just no longer in vogue and probably never going to come back in a serious way. Unless you're Elon Musk and believe in the, in the yeah. well, even then though, it, the cases that that I think he's putting forward is automation, and the question that you know we that I think this film asks um, specifically by the end yeah. is is what does a society that has been replaced by robots, uh, well, how does a society that has been replaced by robots function on a on a so on a purely pragmatic level in a, in a right. global economy? I mean, there's two ways it functions. <laughs> Uh, one would be a living wage and they try to just sort of let people live out their existences however they want by paying for them to exist, not to thrive, but just sort of to be at least healthy enough to continue their lives or not doing that <laughs> or, and, or and the literally letting people and entire swaths of country people in countries all over the world when automation hits. Just letting people die. No, I, th I think we're going to go the Terminator route, which is that we become food for the robots. Oh uh, no, that's point. the Matrix. Oh uh, well, no, in Terminator Salvation, that's uh, they become. Oh, food Terminator for the Salvation isn't canon. Oh really? Not anymore. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Long, long story. Long story. But yeah, but at some point we'll just become food for the it's robots. Our American hel hellscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah this it's is our own American, American hellscape. <laughs> this has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, and, and, yeah, it's been and great. one that I think um, touches. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, on on the bigger picture outside of the film, which I think is fascinating. The film itself, I think, is captivating. I think it is it is gripping. I think it is beautifully told. I think it actually it manages to encapsulate the complexities of the issues with without feeling trite or didactic in any way. Um, so I think it's a it's an absolute must watch. I you know I as much as uh, uh, Obama may have had. 
uh, I guess, you know, the, the, the rhetoric of hope and change, uh, still lingering in, in his delivery here, which we've all, um, kind of wondered if, if it has any validity. Um, I still think the, the branding of, uh, of, of higher grounds, his production company and having him brand it allows this film to reach a broader audience. And, you know, yeah, it would, uh, allows us to kind of discuss this film that we may not have no, uh, ordinarily sought out. Um, and, and I think, you know, like the, the fact that it's dealing with a complex political issue is important. And, and it, for, for our listeners, I think it's a, a really fascinating, uh, wonderful chance to look at this issue, you know, dynamically and captivatingly, more so than it would be like looking at a, some reshoot statistics. It's also, I, oh, sorry. I just had one question for both of you guys was, what did you think of the outro music? It was... <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it. It was it's, weird. It, it was weird. It was a little heavy-handed. Maybe it, the person who made the short interview <laughs> afterwards <laughs> had a hand in the last five minutes I, of the documentary. I, there is. It felt a little bit incongruent with the tone of the yeah. film. It's very, it's very big. It. You know, it's a very big uh, piece of editing. There's one uh, piece of editing in the film that I was like, I can see the entire conversation around the edit um, basically hitting pause for around three weeks uh, at a guesstimate uh, to to discuss one moment in this film. And that is when the new president says, "Let's make America great again." Mm. He he says, "It's it's this film has no overt references to Donald Trump, but that is the one point at which the film kind of makes a direct reference to mm-hmm. the rhetoric of Donald Trump." Yeah, and he says, and he explicitly says, "Let's make America great again." And I and I was very. I wondered how much, uh, as an uh, as an editor, that they'd agonized over that moment. What they thought about the conversations around that moment, uh, I think, would have been really fascinating to be a fly on the wall for. There, there's a very odd, different feeling mm-hmm. when someone from an outside country coming in and, and sort of adjusting how we would do our business, which would seem, if on the people that are very focused on independence, saying like, "Hey, I'm an outside person from all of this." Let's make you great again. And it's like, ooh. Well, like, it's, it's, I mean, the reason I found that moment so fascinating is because I think it comes after a, a conversation where he says, essentially, we need to give our wisdom to these laborers because we're better than them. Yeah. And and the I think it speaks to something you said when you spoke to, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the uh, Turner, uh, who is the economist that you spoke to? Or, oh, Tucker, Todd Tucker. To, to yeah. Todd Tucker, when he talked about um, essentially economic diplomacy. Mm. And I wonder, you know, like when I... I actually don't buy that argument. Uh, like, I would have to see hard data about the uh, the conversation of economic diplomacy because I have a hard time believing that that uh, Chairman Cow would, you know, essentially donate five hundred million dollars of his money to economic diplomacy. Maybe I, I'm sure there's there's rationalizations for that. But that moment when he said, when the new president says, "Let's make America great again." I think very much conjures the the possibility that this is the case. Well, even the you know, I'll, tipping the the slight conspiracy theory had he could be getting kickbacks from his own government for doing this. He could be getting well, they're stayed back. He talked about subsidies from the oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so, yeah. but also then too, uh, you know, you're getting the sort of the to, to grease the wheels of this entire thing. That literally, you know, the branding of that style of thing could be an actual like thing that was worked in. Also, it could be. Um, just sort of in order to get the foothold in the country. I don't know. There's there's a lot Here, of things. Here's one thing I think we maybe have like glossed over in terms Ooh. of this entire conversation. Because, <laughs> because Because, you know, we're all leftists. We're all sort of uh, labor-orientated people. We're all people who believe in the, the rights of the workforce and that sort of thing. But from a globalization point of view, like America is not entirely... Um, uh, innocent when it comes to economic warfare in many, in other countries. Oh, absolutely you know, not. So, like, yeah. so for for uh, we we this film may kind of make 
us seem like we're the victim. The, we're the we're the rebellion against the empire. But but we're, you know, in reality, oh, we, America's the empire. You know, like we you know, in terms of the 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 economic warfare that America has waged on many different countries, you could argue this may be a case of of just seeing what it feels like to be colonized. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say capital is the empire. And right. you know, capital is global and has no real nationality or face. It's most have been concentrated, <laughs> you know, in the global north, but you know, it's and now it's swinging increasingly as 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 the US loses relative uh, economic power, it's switching. But yeah, like everyone's ultimately am I allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucked. By yeah, capital. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the I capital have... the capital is the empire. But you know what that makes America? <laughs> The goddamn first order, oh, God. <laughs> and that sucks. <laughs> I have one one last question for you, actually, just because you've read Peter Navarro's book, and Peter Navarro, uh, as we discussed earlier, is the uh, secretary for manufacturing and trade, um, and had he has sort of a, an almost. The way you describe it, I haven't read his book, is almost pathological fear of China mm -hmm. uh, to the point where he's funded a documentary called uh, "China Will Death, Death by China." Death by China. Have you seen that documentary? I sadly I have I would like to see that the same way I like watching bad horror movies. Right, right, right. I'm uh, I'm I haven't seen it. I just like a clip. Just a clip. I'm curious what you think. Uh, I you know because I kind of asked you how Bernie and Warren uh, and and uh, Sa uh, sorry Sanders and Warren would have watched this documentary. I'm curious what you think Peter Navarro or the Trump administration views the issues that are in this documentary. Having read that book, yeah, I mean, so Navarro basically would. The, the thing I wrote in this sort of profile I did of sort of a kind of an intellectual profile of Navarro on China is that he technically starts from a rational place in a lot of the things he says about China. Like he's not wrong about the way that, you know, Chinese power is going to reshape global political economy. And he's not wrong that the role they have in the WTO and the and and specifically, you know, the access they can have to other markets um is ultimately not good he's not and he's not wrong about the fact that like the way they treat intellectual property from foreign companies that want to um compete in the chinese market are wrong and he's not wrong that like they are, have a very deregulated um attitude towards a lot of industry that makes undercuts you know makes it uh, is unfair for a, a lot of other workers but he always takes everything many <laughs> steps too far and i'm not sure you know i don't I'm not a fan of doing, you know, kind of psychoanalysis on on something like, you know, xenophobia or racism, like chicken or the egg, whether or not he sees his things and then he becomes, you know, just ter terrified in a way that I think becomes blatantly racist of China or he was racist and then sees his stuff, whatever. I don't, you know, that that's impossible to, to you know, distinguish between. But he starts to become concerned with how this attitude is is and and you know he refers to kind of China as a sort of you know dragon mm -hmm. um, that's just going to destroy America uh, and 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 the world is is kind of unhinged and I I think that what could be explained by like we were saying kind of differing visions of the economy and differing attitudes towards capitalism and um, you know China has a very idiosyncratic attitude towards the way it governs its mixed economy it's definitely a lot of state intervention. And it's definitely, um, you know, increasingly open uh, to global markets and, and, and kind of cutthroat industrialist in, in, in various ways. But, um, oh, sorry. Do, do you think he would be 
because of his his uh, feelings about China, which you know uh, seem somewhat based in rationality, but eventually you know dive off the cliff at some point. Do you think he, this documentary would make him uh, a labor movement supporter because of his feelings about China? I actually don't know exactly where he comes down on labor rights. I mean, I'm assuming by virtue of the fact that he's in the Trump administration, he is not a great supporter of labor, but he is, you know, he's been an economist for a long time before entering there. So I'm not sure exactly how he feels about that question. Given his monomaniacal obsession with China (laughs) and the way in which he views anything China does as an extension of their fundamental kind of savagery and exploitative nature and sneaky ways. Again, very kind of racialized tropes he always uses when talking about things. He I probably think, read Oriental, Orientalism a few times, right? They would say, "Oh, definitely, yeah, very, yeah, <laughs> yeah, deep reader of that." <laughs> he will. He he would basically just say, "Look, this is an example of what happens if we let our China continue to grow without pushing back and stopping the rise of this." you know, evil empire and that soon we'll all be answering to Chinese overlords (laughs) if we don't find a way to rein them in. And again, there is the, like, theoretically, there's an argument to be made that yes, like if the global economy doesn't figure out a way to regulate some of China's growth and some of the way it, you know, engages intellectual property theft, which is a very serious issue for the competitiveness of a lot of say like Western economies, that's true, but also he'll basically be like, well, we should destroy China, <laughs> and that's the way we do this. So, I mean, sadly, I think that even setting aside his labor views, his his priority is basically cho- you know, chopping down China to size. And honestly, Steve Bannon was still in the administration, and a few other people, and it was a little earlier on, and China pulled some aggressive moves in South China Sea. I think Navarro would be one of those people saying, let's go to war right. in South China Sea. I mean, he genuinely thinks at all costs it must be stopped. It's worse than like the Soviet Union, 20th century. Like, And, you know, obviously Hawks in the Soviet Union believe that it's okay to fund death squads that com- overthrow democratic regimes, basically w- to back things that stand against everything that we putatively stand for in the U.S. just to be able to make sure you cut down the Soviet Union. So, yeah, I mean, it's all about that <laughs> other that you need to destroy. It's scary. I'll yeah. tell you, I, I don't know as much about uh, that Navarro, but I bet you Dave Navarro, after watching <laughs> this, would probably <laughs> be pretty on board with labor unions. Right. Um, this shout is- out to the FUFA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this has been the only podcast about the film American Factory. Uh, Zishan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. Yeah, no, we really, I think it uh, it helped us to frame this conversation in really interesting ways. Where could um, where could people find you if they wanted to re- uh, to, to 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 see more of your work? Um, well, I guess the simplest thing would probably be on on Twitter. I'm at Zishan Alim. That's at Z E E S H A N A L E E. M. And also, if you just Google that, you can find my website. And if you, you know, if you want to have a newsletter, you can sign up for that. It's, you know, terrible. I, I, would, hi- <laughs> <laughs> I would highly recommend it. I am a, I, I am an avid reader of your work, and I'm very glad that we got the chance to actually have you on the podcast. Uh, Matt, when you are decrying the, the, the call of labor unions because of a, a simple thing that your father said to you once many years ago, and realizing that you are now the leader of the First Order, where could people find you? That is a loaded, <laughs> loaded question of announcing where I am online. I don't know if, if after that I want to give where I am. Uh, no, 
know I'm a narcissist. You can find me at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram and PSN and Emperor MSK on Twitter. You can also find the good works we are doing over on Extra Credits. I just believe we, we did something on content curation, which is sort of um, how digital storefronts are sort of having the ability to control certain narratives, even politically, uh, as pretty much almost everything is political. Sorry, video game friends. Video games are political. Um, also, oh, we're doing stuff on the Inca Empire, the rise and fall of the Inca Empire, and uh, that is some fascinating, fascinating... Actually, there's a lot of, and I won't get into it, but there is some correlation with sort of the transplant... Long story short, many Inca rulers did transplant vast quantities of native peoples from one end of their empire to the other based on economic, what, what would make the most goods. And it was terrible, and it ripped the entire thing apart, but it made it more efficient. And you look at things like that with sort of all of the stuff we've talked about, and it uh, it all it's all connected. Shahir, yeah. when you're not accusing me of being part of the leader of mm. a, uh, I would say, d- despicable, terrifying, nostalgia-fueled uh, organization like the First Order. Um, the, the, I mean, they, they worship Vader hard. Where can folks find you? Man, if I knew Star Wars better, I would have, like, come back with one of the First Order's quotes. What, what is, is the First Order say anything? Like, they just they, yell a bunch. Are they, like, you know, like, They're, they're, they're literally, the, they're, they're make some... the Empire great again. That's literally, what, like, they took all of the tech that, like, the Empire <laughs> had that fell and, like, built an army out of, like, we, from the ashes, we, we need to bring things back to the way the Empire had. And it's like, oh, geez, we're going to build a, no more Death Stars, let's just make a planet that shoots lasers. Anyway, I wanted to know where people <laughs> could find you on the internet. <laughs> you can find me at my website, www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D, and that has links to all my work in Twitter. Uh, what are we going to do next week? I don't know. I don't know. When, I don't know. When's Ad Astra come out? Have you seen the trailer for Ad Astra? I haven't. The, it's the it's the Brad Pitt space movie, but it yeah. looks way better than that sounds. Okay. Ja- um, ja- direct, uh, the director of that, James Gray, is a very, very good filmmaker. Uh, uh, is that That's not next week. No, that's not next week. Oh, I mean, well. what? Should we come back and do Escape Room or Fight Club or The Game? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or one of those things? Is yeah. that where... Escape Room, man. Oh, Escape Room's so good. Fight Club and The Game, Nostalgia Politics. They, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, wow. well, I, I won't rewatch The I, Game. Look, I think the game i'm i'm going on a limb here i think the game is one of the finest examples of american filmmaking in the last 25 years i'm I not dis- might actually be older than that i'm literally not disagreeing with you it's it's <laughs> super <laughs> I, that, I just i have one silly principle and i'm going to keep it anyway thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll be back with something next week um yeah bye bye goodbye